0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Hey, welcome back. So, do you think we can actually go an entire podcast today without me talking about the coronavirus? Well, I'm not actually going to try. It's going to come up today, but we're going to not make that the main focus of today's podcast. Not because I don't think it's important, but the well, there's other things to talk about. And I want to start off with precious metals, which is not something I made a video specifically on in, gosh, it feels like forever, probably a couple months. In all reality, probably like a week. But but I want to start off with talking about the recent price action in the metals, partly in response to this coronavirus, as well as, you know, the, the relatively important event that's actually coming up today. And that is, of course, the Fed meeting. So... Let's start off with some of the recent price action. Now, gold, on the gold side of things, because gold and silver, a little bit of a different spread here over the last, in terms of the ratio and whatnot, over the last couple days. They have been behaving differently. As a whole, as this fear about this coronavirus kind of ratcheted up and fears about a global slowdown, Uh, kind of came into play, you saw both gold and silver rally. Now, gold to a greater extent, but silver rally to some extent as well. And actually, if you're watching other markets, you saw the price of copper really drop off a cliff, collapse. And and why is it the case? Well, I mean, you have probably thousands of factories in China right now that are closed. And it's, it's almost like yesterday, probably, and overnight... People realize that hey, that might be a little bit bearish for silver as well. I, and I get where they're coming from, even though if I, even though I'm not in agreement with the move, silver did move quite a bit to the downside, actually pretty significantly below seventeen dollars and fifty cents. Now it has recovered some of that. I mean, gold moved to the downside a bit too, but but silver is far more drastic. Both metals have recovered some, but we're seeing gold above that fifteen sixty range, that key resistance, which. Uh, You know, pretty soon it's going to start, you know, we're going to start calling it support probably. Uh, But silver hasn't recovered that $18 an ounce or or anything above that as of right now. Still well below that. So, again, why is that the case? I mean, again, it's probably fears about a global economic slowdown. Now, one of the interesting things about silver is, is the fact that it's not just an industrial metal like copper and like most other metals on the market, really, with the exception of of gold and, you know, to some extent, maybe platinum and whatnot. Uh, uh, Silver is unique in that, you know, roughly half of its demand comes from what we'd consider industrial sources, whether that's solar panels, electrical devices, vehicles, houses, on and on and on. And then the other half comes from more so investment and discretionary spending. So we're, we're talking coins, bars, you know, bullion, uh, jewelry, uh, sometimes a little maybe dainty sterling silver ring you see here in the United States, or much larger pieces of jewelry in places like like India. Uh, and then silverware, which again also can be bought for its metal value. Uh, again, in places like India, rather than just because it's shiny. right? So Silver is kind of unique in that sense. You know, The same is true somewhat for gold, but, but a far larger percentage of the gold market is uh, physical investment demand. Um, and then you look at other metals like platinum and palladium and, and rhodium, and they all have very small components of investment in, in their demand, but the vast majority is uh, just industrial uses. And then you know when you get beyond that, it's almost entirely industrial uses, except for, you know, like copper and zinc and nickel and whatnot are used in coinage. But otherwise, you know, basically industrial uses. Other than that, and so you, you have this interesting situation where where gold, uh, copper goes down really significantly, and silver sort of playing catch up. Now, in in the from a perception that hey, industrial demand is going down. You know, from that point of view, that move makes sense. It certainly makes sense for copper right now. However, you know, the big difference here is that that decline in demand is not as uh, drastic for uh, silver compared to copper because only half of its demand is, is industrial, whereas copper is far, far higher than that. But additionally, you know, all these moves that are going on in the global economic system and the slowdown of the Chinese economy, slowdown of the global economy, uh, ultimately leads to a, well, first of all, lower asset prices like stocks and real estate and whatnot, which oftentimes leads to a safe haven bid for assets, including silver and gold. Then the other side of it, too, is that all of this plays into things like monetary easing, Quantitative easing, uh, lower interest rates, repo market operations—all that—which is inflationary and bullish for silver. So that's why I kind of say that you know this this move. I get it from purely an industrial perspective and and whatnot in terms of of how much silver is being used in these factories and 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 what does this mean for trade in the economy? I get it, but there's so much more to the story. In fact, you know, it was back in 2008, 2009 during the Great Recession, that we saw demand for silver really skyrocket. It was unlike anything uh, silver investors had seen in in decades. And I don't really expect anything else, anything less than that during the next recession. People get afraid; they want to hedge. They want to hedge against their their. 401k, they want to hedge against you know the really, uh, uh, I guess worst case scenario outcomes of that, including mass inflation or societal breakdown or political upheaval, or just you know major crashes in these asset markets. People want protection from that, and gold obviously fills that role, but we've seen it happen so many times in the past that during a bull market, there's some inflection point where investors realize or decide gold's kind of expensive here. Not that it can't continue to rally another 50 or 100%, but that the greater upside is actually in uh, silver. Gold's uh, what, redheaded stepchild or cousin or whatever you want to call it. That's that's mean. I mean, redheads get a bad rap, but uh, that's kind of what has happened time and time again in these bull markets. That silver ultimately has to play catch up, but then vastly outpaces gold because the market is so dang small. Right, we're talking about a billion ounces a year. Uh, you know, seventeen to eighteen billion dollars worth of silver coming onto the market. Uh, that's, that's a small, small fraction of the global gold market. And so much of that silver is already uh, accounted for in terms of industrial demand. And so much of it is, is just used up and is not recovered, which is certainly not the case for, for gold. Gold is wasted at far lower quantities. So Fed meeting today, what are we going to hear from them? Well, I think from an interest rate perspective, not a whole lot. Now, I would be surprised for them to to go either way, honestly, and, and that's maybe me just hedging my bets. I don't know, but but what I mean by that is I could see them really coming out and trying to portray portray a uh, an image of confidence in the global economy. That hey, despite this this and that, the global economy, the U.S. economy is on a good path, and because of that we're forecasting rate hikes in the you know maybe one in 2019 or maybe some more in 2020 you know really long-term stuff that they don't sorry i'm, I'm maybe one in 2020 maybe a couple in 2021 i'm getting my ears mixed up here you know the sort of long-term prediction that they don't have to really commit to and, and can kind of go back on should they feel a need to which they almost undoubtedly will you know, later on this year and and into 2021. And then there's the topic of quantitative easing, which Jerome Powell most, you know, famously now called not QE, not quantitative easing, back in, gosh, probably like December, November, which which is, of course, the, you know, what is it, $60 billion a month of T-bill purchases that the Fed is, is completing, in addition to their ongoing, repo market operations. Now, the Fed doesn't have to make a decision on this right now, but they're you know slowly running out of time. I mean, they initially said that they would stop this not QE program at the end of quarter 1, if I remember correctly. Quarter 1 of 2020, which means through March. Well, you know, this is the end of January meeting, and they'll have another meeting in the middle of March. That's, you know, they do it roughly every 45 days or every month and a half. And so, you know, the question is, you know, are they going to give themselves some room and say, we'll decide more then, or are they actually going to come out today and say, no, we're, we're going to end it at the end of March. Not that they have to hold themselves to that at all, but it'll be interesting to see what they do have to say about this quantitative easing, as well as repo market operations. You know, are they ever really going to remove that those tens, hundreds of billions of dollars liquidity that they added to the system? I mean, if history is any guide, the answer is no—a resounding no. But it'll still be interesting to see, you know, what they have to say, how they can rationalize continuing these programs uh, despite the fact that you know stocks are still at you know, all-time highs and whatnot. Which finally brings us full circle back to the coronavirus, which I'm not going to go into super deep depth about. I can do an update tomorrow. I mean, on one hand, you, you have the number of confirmed cases in China, which, again, is just a small fraction, likely, the total number of cases. But nonetheless, you see confirmed cases of this in China still ramping up, still sort of in this exponential growth pattern. As of today's data... You know, north of 6,000 confirmed cases worldwide, 137 deaths. Uh, And and again, it's continuing that exponential growth, even though 60,000 is, again, probably just a small fraction. But if you follow that exponential growth, we're talking, you know, by the end of the month, closer to 10,000, you know, given another week, and and we're moving closer to 100,000, right, just because of the nature of how this works. Now, with that being said, you, you, you kind of have a weird situation where some control methods have been put in, Largely in China, they're, they're in place by some individuals willingly in places like, I'm sure, Thailand and Malaysia and Vietnam and Philippines and Japan and Australia and South Korea. But hardly as widespread as China, right? You see these pictures of these ghost towns. Which I, I'm not entirely buying into It's not like everybody is staying home. Everybody cannot stay home. Now, I, I'll concede this, that there's probably a lot of restaurants that are closed, lot of factories and stores that are closed, maybe even some government services, but there's still sort of the day-in, day-out necessities that still kind of have to go on. The show must go on, it's been said, right? And, and of course, I'm referring to things like power plants and, and wastewater treatment and, and uh, the garbage Men and women of the world and whatnot—you know—they have to continue to work. But then the other side of this is, you know, they see these pictures, and then you always wonder with China, just what—you know—I saw a picture of this this hospital that they put up. You know, they had already been caught once uh, putting some unrelated pictures of like an apartment building and saying that this was one of their new hospitals. Well, I saw this picture, this aerial photo. It looked like of this hospital, one of the hospitals that they put up in like a day or two, and. Well, I mean, I have to admit it looks really good and almost looks too good. Now, I could be totally wrong, but but it just looks too fancy, right? Have you guys seen this picture? It's, it's, it's this huge complex, but it's not just a square, you know, almost Soviet-style building, which is what would make the most sense to me, even if you do plan on using this long-term, just get the thing built. No, it's it's got, you know, sort of, what, what's the term, beveled? edges, rounded edges. I- I'm talking from like a uh, like a vertical perspective. You know, if you're looking at it from the front, the corners of it are like rounded and it almost looks like the whole thing is partly on stilts along the side. And they even took the time to put these big, you know, this huge sign on top of these big Chinese characters and whatnot. And it just looks... Uh, like, it's not the hospital we were all looking for. But but maybe, I mean, maybe that was our plan all along, to, to build a actually pretty nice-looking hospital and do it in a short period of time. Who knows what the safety of this place is like or how effective it is. But, hey, more hospital beds, I guess, or more hospital beds at this point in the game. Um, however, you know, so you have that. But then you also have pictures from Beijing and, and so many other places of just dead streets. Nothing going on. And you wonder... Is that really the case? Probably for some parts of these cities. But I think life goes on in a lot of parts of China. Right? I even saw, you know, some images out of Hong Kong, which somebody so kindly pointed out is, is not a Chinese city. And, and I agree, you know, uh, I was also jokingly referring to Taipei as a Chinese city. Uh, but but you see actually quite a bit of life on the streets. You see, a, a, you know, the, the video I specifically was watching was this really long line, or, or what do they call it overseas, a queue. Uh, waiting for masks, which were sold out or in extremely high demand. And yeah, there's a ton of people. A lot of them were wearing masks, but a ton of people there. And, and yeah, masks are in widespread use. Uh, you have people, to some extent, as I said, you know, if you're to believe these pictures, avoiding contact with each other. However... There's also the side that I've been posting about on on Twitter. And follow me over on Twitter for, for, I guess, my thoughts on this up on, on, you know, a couple times a day, this coronavirus. But I've been throwing up some some pictures from flight tracker apps. You you know, you can download download an app on your device, track flights. You can look at a, you know, a, a map, a Google map, and see, you know, what flights are in the air. And if you look over China, it's really busy still. Like, maybe not quite business as usual obviously, you know, the volume has declined somewhat. The U.S. and Canada have announced, you know, some stopping of flights, mostly because of lack of demand. Uh, I think it's British Airways or British Airlines, whatever, whichever one it is. Uh, they announced that they would be, you know, halting flights to China for a while. Uh, Hong Kong said they would be cutting down to half, I think it was, even though, you know, that might have already been the case due to uh, drop-off in demand. But, Nonetheless, you know you see a ton of flights in the air. I mean, that is first of all. I mean, these flights are a pretty good way to spread it. But but also, if you're an infected individual and you're, I mean, these aren't just domestic flights. They're not just Beijing to Guangzhou. You know, it's it's Guangzhou to, to Tokyo. You know, Beijing to to uh, uh, to you know Dulles or or some other major U.S. airport. I don't know if they actually fly there specifically. I'm just giving an example. You know, Chinese flights are still landing in the United States. And, and of course, the United States is considering a, a ban on, on that, which is probably not a bad idea, really. Let's let's be honest. Uh, but it hasn't happened yet. And, and, you know, I think the damage has been done. I mean, there's a, probably a, many more cases than officially reported here in the United States, not even the ones that are suspected, which is upwards of 100 um, there's probably quite a few just hidden under the surface, and and may, we might not ever find out about them until it it you know spreads into a, a bit of a larger you know community problem. Large number of these cases of pneumonia in some of these communities or respiratory distress syndrome uh, or symptoms. Uh, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see where this goes. But but what I can say. Fairly certainly is that uh, the same thing I've been saying for a while now. The best case scenario for this is that it does slowly peter out, but we still get a major global recession. You know, it recently surpassed SARS in the number of cases, and it's obviously going to continue to climb, far in eclipsing the number of cases of SARS. The death count isn't that yet of SARS yet, but that's you know that it's not a great trustworthy number. Uh, not that the cases are either but in terms of economic impact this is uh, pretty significant because this is not as I said not going away anytime soon you know talking about these are not numbers you know on average how many people will an infected person spread it to the, the estimates right now are anywhere from like 3.5 to two over sorry 2.5 to over 3.5 you know so on average two and a half to over three and a half people. To sustain it at current numbers, we'd be talking about an R-naught of 1, meaning that if you get infected, you spread it to one other person, and they spread it to one other person, and they spread it to one other person, right? And it's just steady, right? To meaningfully reduce these cases, they have to get that R-naught below 1, as low below 1 as possible. And yeah, gas, uh, gas masks, uh, respiratory masks help with that, as does uh, bans or restrictions on travel and whatnot. But is it going to be enough? I mean, here's the thing if you have 10,000 cases and an R naught of 0.8, well, congratulations, you have 8,000 cases a couple days from now. You've lowered the number, but it's not so low as to just lift all those bans to open up restaurants and resume business as usual. No, you still have to get much, much lower to the point where you can easily isolate all those cases. And let's not forget that we're most likely talking about way more than 6,000 cases. You know, if this R-naught has been steady going back to, to at some point in January, you know, we could be talking about at uh, some point in January. We're in January, uh, but, but sometime maybe in December or early January. You know, based on that model we're talking about the Chinese government maybe reporting a tenth, a twentieth of the total number of cases. Partly maybe because they're being dishonest, but partly because they just haven't even gotten them yet. Probably pretty significantly underreporting deaths as well. A lot of stories of people in, in these big you know, cities like Wuhan being turned away from hospitals. Understandably so, these hospitals are totally packed. And what do they do then? I mean, I get it, you know, family is a big value in some of these well, families in, in China. But, but a lot of these individuals, well, they go back to their apartment. And if they're 70 years old, and this isn't meant to be an insult to any of my 70-year-old listeners. But if you're 70 years old and you have these respiratory symptoms and it progresses into pneumonia, uh, you're a hurting unit. You're going to have a difficult time recovering on your own. I mean, pretty quickly, you lose the strength to just do basic things like cook yourself food, grab a glass of water, use the bathroom, right? And then, you know, from there, you know, it doesn't take that long for people to just die. And so I wonder, you know, how many people are just sitting in their houses, their apartments, dead. In addition to the people in China that were, you know, died of pneumonia symptoms or pneumonia uh, not symptoms but but a diagnosis diagnosis of pneumonia and we've heard reports of this as well and yet the Chinese you know hospital or doctor puts pneumonia as a cause of death but don't doesn't put coronavirus either because they didn't test for it or because they don't want to you know share the full picture of what's going on the full scope of things so as I said before this is you know from an economic perspective a disaster this could be a black swan I mean they were already having troubles, you know, with decline in economic growth and this could be the thing that puts China and therefore the world over the edge. And believe me when I say, you know, yeah, silver is down today, you know, gold is is still under sixteen hundred. Believe me when I say that what's happening right now in terms of the coronavirus is going to receive a response from the Federal Reserve. Hey, the Federal Reserve might respond to this in a more forceful and more effective way than I don't know if effective is the right word, but forceful and, and proactive. Proactive in the wrong way, but proactive way than the World Health Organization. <laughs> how about that? But, I mean, who knows how much it will factor into their decision this month. But in coming months, at least the economic slowdown in China, if nothing else, will factor into it. And, and believe me, we're still talking just best-case scenario. The pandemic risk for this, a global pandemic, is still relatively high. The risk for mutation for this virus is still relatively high. So, I mean, this is far from over. I think media has cooled down on it a bit. Um, And and I think, you know, Savan Hendrik said it best, you know, yesterday on on Twitter. He didn't specify, maybe since then he has, didn't specify exactly what he was talking about. But he basically puts about how, you know, as the numbers increase, the, the scale is kind of lost on us. That media freaks out when when we get a couple hundred cases total. But now we're talking 6,000 plus cases and the media is losing interest. You know, add another digit onto the end of that, make it a six-figure number. Sorry, five-figure number, which it will be at pretty soon, officially. And the media might care even less. You know, until we start to get see more single and double-digit numbers... In the U.S., European countries, other places that, that the media is is keeping their eye on. Um, so, hope you enjoyed this update. Another great place for updates right now, actually. Uh, Chris Martinson over at Peak Prosperity. Seen a ton of channel growth lately. I mentioned that yesterday. The other thing I wanted to mention, though, is he... Uh, I've been erroneously crediting him with a Ph.D. in, I think I said epidemiology, which is not the case. It's it's in pathology, distinct, uh, uh, I guess, parts of the medical field, quite distinct. What it means is that he still knows more about this than, you know, 99% of the population, I'm sure, more than all of us, or unless you're also a pathologist or an epidemiologist or something like that, virologist, uh, and so, you know, he is certainly an authority on the matter. So check out his uh, YouTube channel as well. But as always, I'd like to thank you from the bottom of my heart for tuning in to today's podcast, and God bless.